We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. We're recording. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Ash. How you doing? Oh, fuck. You're talking to me. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hi. We are making a podcast. Um, no, hello. Let's look. Let's let's do the intro. Like, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Ashley Moritzson. I'm Sarah Willie Hill, and together we are Rusty, <laughs> <laughs> and also we are Demons and Dames. Ooh. We are back together. How long has it been since we last uh, recorded something together, Sarah? I think it's been about two years. It's been a it's been a really long two years. <laughs> oh, because you your life has just been so full of goodness. Yeah, actually, a change. Yes, Lots of fucking change. Really? Uh, give me your top three changes. Got divorced. Moved to Edinburgh. Awesome. I I don't think I have a third that is anywhere near as great as as those two things. Oh, I finally got my British citizenship. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Do you feel different now you are officially a Brit? I feel like genuinely a sense of like security and safety in, in the global war- world order I didn't feel before. So yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Wow, I wish I had that. Maybe that it doesn't work. Maybe it's just something I've taken for granted. Actually, that's a bit deep. I don't, uh, Let's not talk about that. I want to know about <laughs> the ceremony. Did you meet the Queen? I did get a selfie with her portrait because I snuck back into this amazing enlightenment, you know, Scottish unicorns and astrological figures hall that they have and um, had a cheeky selfie with the Queen's portrait. That's pretty fab. Wow. I mean, did you have to sit any uh, tests with any quizzes? Did you have to wear anything? Did you get hit by it with a sword? You know, like... (laughs) did have to take a life in the UK test at some point during like the first lockdown. That was pretty fun. They don't tell you frustratingly if you got all the questions right or not. So I don't know if I got like a 98% or 100 and it's been haunting me for years. I mean, can I just say I like that those are the two options, you know, 98% is the fail. <laughs> 98 percent is the is is the worst case scenario (laughs) i mean like i feel i feel like it was the worst case scenario because they're you know out of however many questions there are only two that i was not 100 percent sure about and they involved like cricketers in england but i'm so pleased to know that that is still considered a key bench you know a key pillar of national identity it's pretty cute actually i don't know what i've done for the last two years i don't know what i've done this morning I don't know, there have been some exciting things. You know what I did this morning? No, 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 let's talk about this morning. I had an everything shower. Yeah, have you heard this expression? It's from TikTok. Yeah. We are keeping up to date, guys. No, an everything shower is a shower where you do everything. Yeah, you just think about what that could mean. <laughs> I kind of I kind of just assumed that's called like, you know, you have a boyfriend and it's Friday morning shower. I mean I like to think I'm doing it for myself. <laughs> I mean, you might be doing it for yourself. I, I'm like, that's that's my regularly scheduled, like, full grooming 
everything rota yeah. you have a rota do you have it on like a wall chart you know or is it just in your like google calendar do you set reminders do you have push notifications okay there 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 are some grooming things that literally come with an app that i have on my phone and i get reminders you are so much more of a woman than i will ever be <laughs> i thought you were gonna say autistic no, no, you're bossing it. You're bossing it. If your body is a site of conflict, it is a highly organized one. I'm just very regimented, I guess. Yeah. No, I like your method of body warfare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So, Ashley, you have. Uh-huh. Do you want to talk about what you've been up to the last couple of years? Uh, yeah. What have I been up to the last few years? I um, got married three times. Um, I opened a business sports sock business. I am. Um, I, I was on that craft that visited the Titanic, um, but don't worry. <laughs> I didn't go down with that one. And um, yeah, I had a fringe for a bit. I, I mean, the fringe was the important bit, obviously. <laughs> I know, obviously. <laughs> bad decision, but good decision, but a bad decision, but a good decision. A fringe is like, fringe is something we need to do. Oh, every woman, I think, every woman has a fringe in her on a like, you know, what's what's more than biannual, triannual basis? It's something you do to remind yourself why you don't have a fringe. And you've got to do it. Otherwise, you'll wonder. And then you spend the next 18 months going, what the fuck did I do? And trying to grow it out and wearing a lot of headbands. And then it's grown out for a bra- a, about a year and then you forget. And then you return <laughs> to the fringe. It's nice. It's a, like a natural like a natural cycle, you know. It's, it's one of those eternal truths in this world of uncertainty and change. I, in many ways, I value it. I saw a lot of fringes over lockdown, actually. It's like a lot of women were like, fuck it, I'm just going to go full fringe because I can't control anything else around me except my hair. Also, a lot of women were spending a lot of time looking at their foreheads. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's seriously for reals, reals. Uh, what have I been up to the last couple of years? Um, oh, I'm back in London, um, which is a shame because you're in Edinburgh. But, uh, you know, the, the, no city can hold both of us. Um <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, um, you know, it's just working man, just romancing, just having a swim, going to the opera, just living a little life, being a very happy, ordinary little person. I'm extraordinary, really, but um, <laughs> I'm uh, doing quite a good job of disguising it. <laughs> so here we are at the beginning of demons and dames season two less talking more dewey but uh yeah this is season two what's happening are you going to tell me some stuff or are you going to speak to someone else so we're about to listen to the first episode so i i got to talk to margaret wilson who is genuinely um just a phenomenal human really enjoyed talking to her she's an anthropologist she's also done a lot of development work so we ended up chatting a lot about that but don't worry offline and she has written out a second book about um, women in historical Icelandic fishing. And she's had masses of grants to do a lot of this research and preserve a lot of their cultural history. And this one, um, her second book, which is called um, Women Rebel Captain, is about a single sea captain called Thurador. Uh, she's just this incredible personality, incredible woman. Um, so you're about to listen to Margaret Wilson talk about her and talk about her book. I ask a couple of relevant questions and that's kind of it. I loved reading the book. I love talking to Margaret and I hope all of you will as well. 
Well, thank you very much, Sarah. I'm, uh, I, for one, will be listening to uh, this, this, this episode uh, and interview, and not just the bit where I'm speaking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, brilliant. We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're So I'm very excited to be here with my guest, Margaret Wilson, who has an eclectic resume of non-academic jobs, including abalone diving and being a deckhand on fishing boats on the south coast of Tasmania. And you were originally an anthropologist. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Well, I'd say I'm still an anthropologist. Being an anthropologist is sort of like joining the Masons. Once you do it, you never get out. (laughs) <laughs> no matter what else you do in your life, because it, it influences the whole way you perceive the world. And it also influences your methodology of anything you later do, including writing of literature, narrative nonfiction, in my case, how you perceive equality, how you, just what you consider important. So mm-hmm. I would say I'm still an anthropologist. And in fact, I'm, I'm with the anthropology department. I'm an affiliate associate professor at the anthropology department and Scandinavian Studies at University of Washington. And I'm a, a senior associate scientist, they call me, at the Stefansson Arctic Institute in Akareri, Iceland. So we're going to be talking kind of mostly around your most recent book, uh, Woman Rebel Captain, that is about Captain Thurider. And I was wondering if you could just introduce her um, and who she was. I'll try. In a short few sentences, as much as I can, Thurider and his daughter, she was born in 1777 and lived a long life until 1864. And she was born into an incredibly oppressed Iceland of the time. It was ruled by Denmark. It was ruled by Denmark for a very long 600 years, during which time they lived in massive poverty, hovels where they barely had heat. Starvation was always a problem, huge child mortality. And in that environment, she not only, she survived, she had such resilience. Um, That's what I find. So what the facts are, she became, she started fishing on her father's boat when she was 11. And she was quickly noticed as being an incredible fisherman. And by the time she was a teen, everybody was noticing her incredible abilities, not only at fishing, but also at her observational abilities. She was clearly really smart. And by the time she was her late teens, she was considered the best deckhand in the entire area. Women did fish, uh, did work at deck, as deckhands on the boats at that time. Um, and there were a few that became captains. There's not a lot of information on them. But her, she became very renowned and celebrated and controversial. She's very controversial in many ways. When she was a teenager, she decided to start wearing trousers. She wasn't disguising herself as a man. This was in the late 1700s. She just did it because she said it was more practical. She liked it better. And soon she was wearing trousers everywhere except to church and certain social occasions, you know, formal occasions. But even then, people gossiped and said she wore trousers under her skirt. <laughs> she eventually became her, the captain of her own boat and was she fished as much, as much as the very, very best fishing captains. Everybody wanted to be on her boat. 
She was written about because in the early 1800s, 1827, in this very oppressed country, there was a home invasion robbery of a very wealthy farmer, one of the elite. And this is something that's just never happened. The authorities couldn't figure it out. Nobody really wanted to help him either. Neither neither did Thurida, actually, just because you you were going to see the horror inflicted. Because the the robbers could have been your your cousin or your neighbor or your deckhand. You know, you just didn't know. But she was blackmailed into it by the authorities. She really didn't have much choice. But once she did it, she was always on the side of justice. So she figured, well, if you'd done it, then... You should own up to it. Her incredible powers of observations meant that she solved it immediately, for which Mm -hmm. men tried to take total credit. Because of that, a lot was written about her. That's one of the things that's so amazing, is that we have this remarkable woman, and because Icelanders all knew how to read, and a lot of, particularly men, wrote just farmers and fishermen wrote all about their neighbors because of their big, their heritage of the sagas, the Icelandic sagas. And everybody was really into literature. They just made up poetry. They had poetry battles, like rap battles. And because of that, there's this phenomenal uh, written record, mm-hmm. as I don't think there is in any other country. Because of her solving this crime... And because she was just such a remarkable person, people wrote about her. So doing the research in these crumbling archival materials, people wrote down verbatim conversation. They wrote about love trysts. They wrote about betrayals. They wrote about fights. They wrote about, you know, gossip. Because of this amazing material, I was able to write this book so that it reads like a novel. But it's all true, mm-hmm. according to the historical record. What is remarkable is the person. Thurida was an amazing person. How she could stand up so strong against such oppression and be so not only an incredible captain, become incredibly acclaimed at that, but also on justice. And she had such compassion and such intelligence. It comes through all the way through. She just could maintain that all the way through. And a lot of people really, really respected her for it. And she she was also apparently very, very funny and a very good storyteller. Mm -hmm. But what is amazing is that in, you know, records of women, especially just a common woman, just doesn't exist. And in this case, it does. So -hmm. we have this chance to see this insight into this amazing life, which... Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity I think we're almost never given. If we're looking at, you know, perceiving our reality at present and how does the history feed into that, that's an incredible chance. And I think it's an incredible book you've created as well. Uh, When you're talking about being an anthropologist, I think that's something that comes through in your writing so clearly because you create such an amazing multidimensional picture of the society, um, the conflicts within this society, um, both from, you know, sort of the, I don't want to call them the overlords from Denmark, but that's the phrase that comes to mind. 
as well as kind of, you know, the tensions between the community and the religious leaders and also how the religious leaders were kind of the go-to people to resolve the conflicts within the society. I just, I found it incredible. And I've, I've never really studied um, this time or area before. So learning about Iceland through your book and the Icelandic society, as well as Thurdur's own incredible life was just amazing. I absolutely adored your book. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. That's really kind. I'm curious how you first came across her story. I live in Seattle and I bought my house where I still live 20 some years ago. Twenty At that time, houses were much more affordable in Seattle. But even then I was just beginning teaching. I couldn't afford it. And so it's a four bedroom house. So I started renting rooms out. And one of them was a woman from Iceland applied physicist. She got an EU project that took her to her native Iceland. She was living in Seattle. And she invited me to come and visit her while she was there. And that was not, that was long before tourists were coming to Iceland. Well, when am I ever going to go to Iceland besides this? So I thought, well, this would be great. Sure. Why not? <laughs> a native person showing me around. Yeah. So I went. She, as any would, you know, a good host, she's showing me around her, the country, and we go to the south coast, southeast coast of Iceland, to these small communities of Stokseri and Erebaki, and we're wandering around the back streets of Stokseri, and we came across a, at the time, a very dilapidated fishing hut. And she leans over and starts reading the plaque next to it, that translating the Icelandic, and she said, well, it was dated 1949, and it said, this is a reconstruction of the winter fishing hut of the acclaimed fishing captain, Thurderi and his daughter. She lived from 1777 to 1864. And I said, this acclaimed fishing captain was a woman? You know, as you say, I, I've worked on boats myself. I've read a lot about the maritime. And we're told that there aren't any female captains in history. None. Zero. I mean, Grace O'Malley in, in Ireland, yes, in the 1500s, which... We wish there was more information, but she wasn't fishing captain. She was a pirate. But besides that, nobody. So I thought, well, how come we haven't heard about this acclaimed female fishing captain who was so well thought of by this community that they made a reconstruction of her winter fishing hut? And that, that's what was. I was working in Brazil at the time, so this clearly changed the course of my field in anthropology and a lot of other things, actually. <laughs> so it became a quest. And eventually it led to this book. Oh, I think it's brilliant. You talked a little bit about how you were able to write the book because there's more, because of this famous um, robbery case, there's, there's more written about her than most people. But can you tell me a little bit more about the, the process and how, how you were able to piece her life together so completely? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge my wonderful research assistants. I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. I got a few grants, both from the States and Iceland. Which I'm, for which I'm incredibly grateful. I couldn't have done it without that. Also, a number of Icelandic scholars. There are a lot of Icelandic scholars who are specialists in classic written Iceland, handwritten Icelandic, or this Icelandic, formal Icelandic Danish mix, which normal Icelanders can't read. Those people were incredibly generous. Without those people, 
this wouldn't have been possible because there's no way I could have read this. With my research assistants, we first combed the libraries, the main library, the National and University Library of Iceland, which has basically everything. So we're getting all these books from the 1890s and early 1900s. And, and they had, people had already collected material in some of those. They have, there are these books called Saga Erbaki, for example, the community of Erbaki. People have put together books on specific communities. At certain times, people have interviewed all the, this is something Icelanders do, all the local people that they can find, and they put all the stories, they put all the shipwrecks, they put just everything in these books. They come out as saga whatever, saga, you know, Erbaki, saga, Stokseri, saga, fill in whatever the community's name is. And these are incredibly useful because they give details of all the occurrences in a specific time frame of an area. So we went through all those, looking for anything related to her. I made big databases as I began to understand the people that she was connected with and important in her life. I did huge genealogies to figure out who the charts, to figure out who they were. And then with the databases, I was able to just start putting information about very disparate mentions about different people into each section of the database so I could create a larger whole. That's how we started. And then, then we went downstairs to the manuscripts division and mm-hmm. looked at all these priests' records and a lot of handwritten stuff down there that they had preserved. Went through all that, and the librarians were incredibly helpful there. And then we went to local libraries, and I worked with a lot of local museums. Curators were incredibly helpful in that area. Photocopied and gave me unpublished material for me to look at. I mean, incredibly generous. Then we went to the National Archives. Boxes, boxes, stacks of boxes of just falling apart, uh, yellow, sort of handwritten materials. And we went through those looking for her name and made a huge database of those and analyzed those. And there's still more, by the way. You have to just quit at a certain point. But there's a lot of those. There's more on her, which I don't know yet. And then we also looked at, from that, you could have authority. Like, she went to court later on Mm -hmm. against somebody who, if they harassed her for wearing trousers or on behalf of a woman who was abused by her husband for various reasons, Mm -hmm. always for justice. All those records are also in the archives. So we looked through all those and the official's diaries. It it was an extensive process, as you can imagine. And then also the local people in the communities where she lived were incredibly generous. Here I am, this foreigner, researching one of their people in their own history. People told told me oral history. They took me to the places. They showed me. Because that area hasn't changed that much, they were able to show me exactly where she went out and came in how the boats came out and went in, all this sort of detailed local information that made the descriptions in the book possible. Mm-hmm. Two of the people who were the most knowledgeable in this passed away before the book was published, so they never got to see it. Um, I'm very sad to say, two wonderful, wonderful people. I was very glad to be able to collect this mm-hmm. information that would have otherwise been lost. So, you know, it, it was it was a pretty... <laughs> And then I had to put it all together, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it was a pretty intensive process. Can I ask how many years this took? 2013, I got a 
quite a nice grant from National Geographic. And so then I was able to spend quite a bit of time in Iceland, going around the country, interviewing women and researching on the history of women in fishing altogether, which resulted, which included Thurider, actually, but it was all these women. And that resulted in this book, Sea Women of Iceland, Survival on the Edge, which came out in 2016. And that laid the groundwork. So when you say, how long did it take? How long does anything in our lives take? What influences us to be who we are, of course, oh. or our knowledge? I couldn't have done the third of the book as I did if I hadn't done this other first, because it gave me all that time, gave me a much deeper understanding of Iceland and its history and its mm -hmm. fishery and life in rural Iceland. It, it was really important. And, and sort of a Icelandic psyche, what 600 years of horrific poverty does to people in a very deep level, intergenerationally. And that is very present in Iceland. But I didn't actually start doing real research on, specifically on 30, 2019, I got an actual grant to start the archival research. So that's when I did most of it. Of course, then COVID hit. I had to write this book during COVID when I couldn't go to Iceland. And it would have not been possible without my research assistant, Svenbjerg, who virtually, she and I worked really intensely together when I couldn't go there. And so then she had to look things up and then we would discuss them and do that. I mean, I already had most of it put together by then, but when I was writing, you still need, I still need a huge amount of uh, work done. So she worked with me on that. That was wonderful. She's fantastic. And then I was finally able to go to Iceland just to finish it off in 2020. I got permission to go. That was very important to see the places I was then writing about and mm -hmm. think about it. So, you know, you'd say 2019 through, I finished it in 2020, 2020, 2021. I mean, it takes a long time for these books to come out. Yeah. But it sounds like it's a journey that you've been on for more than 10 years. Um, Absolutely. And, it's, and I think that really comes out in your writing. I've got one more kind of question, comment about the the book itself before we start talking about Theridor. And that's just one of the things I really loved is how you've written it. Because it's not a novel and it's not written as a history. And it to me, it almost felt like an oral tradition. And I was kind of wondering if that is something that had consciously come through this sort of rich Icelandic oral tradition of histories as you were writing it, or if that um, was kind of coming in in the subconscious instead. Well, the writing process, I'm sure you know, is a very intriguing, complex one, isn't it? But I actually worked, I had to work very hard to get it out of the original way some of it was written, because... The people tended to write a lot in in almost a saga style. Mm -hmm. Somebody is the son of somebody is the son of somebody. And it, it it's very convoluted <laughs> to plow through sometimes. So I worked very hard to rephrase it in a modern narrative style. Mm -hmm. However, still keeping the sense of the original. I worked really hard to do that, actually. So I appreciate you saying that. It took many, many drafts. No, I thought I thought you did an amazing job. Um, and to me, it 
really resonated with a lot of the oral tales and things of where I grew up in Appalachia and sort of how we tell family stories and things and, and how you were able to keep that narrative in it and that voice without it sounding too much like a novel and, and certainly not sounding like a lot of the history books I, I read. Um, so I just, I really enjoyed it and I hope our well, listeners will enjoy it as well. I appreciate it because that's something I tried very hard to do and you don't have a lot of models for it. So. No, you don't. So let's talk more about Thorder herself because uh, she's just absolutely brilliant. Um, what do you think made her such an unusual an effective leader, particularly compared to her male counterparts. Because as you said, she was known as being like the best captain, not just the best female captain. No, she was the best captain, yeah. She had this amazing ability to be incredibly observant. She was obviously really, really smart and perceptive, but also to see, she was compassionate from a very young age and to see compassionate and yet very strong sense of justice, but calmly be able to work for fairness in a situation. So when she was, for instance, when she was, it was, and to just have a good, to have wisdom maybe from a very young age. I mean, even when she's a teenager, it's noted in the records that all these fishermen and others on the shore are beginning to come to her and ask her for advice because it said she always had a good answer. So she's becoming known even as a teenager. And so when she takes, she starts working after she works with her brother. And then she, after a while, she starts working for this guy who was called Yon Rich because he became rich in a way that nobody really understood. And nobody could get rich and he somehow managed it. So he got her because he wanted the best deckhand around. And so he usually got what he wanted. But he had a very bad relationship with a lot of his crew because he was arrogant and he pushed them in a way that wasn't to their best interests often. He was a risky captain, so he went out in ways that were not particularly good weather. All these sort of things that made him pretty problematic in many ways as a captain. Thuridur worked as an intermediary on the boat. And and it, it says that, you know, the relationship between him and his crew improved massively. They said she knew when to come in and when to go out. She would go out sometimes when the weather was turbulent because she could tell it was going to calm down. So it got so other boats would follow her lead. And when she decided to come in, even if they didn't see a cloud in the sky, she said, no, no, it's going to change. We have to go in. Everybody else followed because she was mm -hmm. always right. So this is commented a lot among other fishermen. So, you know, so she has this ability of perception, intelligence, a wisdom from a young age and just a calm, compassionate fairness and justice that she could even make her captain when she's countering him on the boat. He gets so he really relies on her instead of just getting angry at her. He in the end says, well, all right. And so people said, well, everybody knew she basically ran his boat. Mm -hmm. So, so it started really early that she was exceptional. She just really was amazing. She would have been amazing to meet. She was obviously really, really had a lot of depth and really smart. Her powers of observation is it kind of comes in later in her life when, as you said, she gets involved in this robbery case and she becomes kind of a bit of a sleuth. 
Um, can you tell us more about the the notorious crime and um, also who ended up getting credit for the case and kind of what the fallout for her was? And that was interesting because we read the actual records on how they did that. So it was the, the mm-hmm. county commissioner who had a huge amount of power in this unequal society. He had knew nothing about rural communities such as he would, God forbid, that he would socialize with those sort of people or even associate with them. And the small elite, this is written, was scared that there was going to be like an uprising, like the French Revolution. And they felt this robbery, and there was a murder in North Iceland almost about the same time. And those two things together sent them into a tailspin, uh, sort of frothing, terrified. So it was a home invasion robbery where four men came in, they tied up the people, he covered them with stuff, and they robbed this guy of his money chest. Quite a lot of money, a huge amount considering the time. Thurder was essentially blackmailed into helping them because nobody could figure it out. And Jan Rich, who was mad at her at this point because she had left him to captain her own boat by this point. And so instead of being the best catching more fish than anybody else, um, as he was when she was his deckhand, he now had to compete with her equally at sea, mm-hmm. where often she did better. So he hated her. So, you know, so he basically told the county commissioner, you should go to her. And so the county commissioner, because he knew that he wouldn't want to help, he told her she had to have a license to wear trousers, which was a lie and said that he would prosecute her, basically, if she didn't help him. So she did. She really didn't have any choice. So, you know, what was interesting is she immediately solved it. She was really amazing. I mean, and what's so cool is the records tell exactly how she did it through these pretty amazing powers of observation, actually. Now, He did try and disguise this as much as possible. He wrote an autobiography, (laughs) which we were able to get, you know, so we read it. And he taught, and he became, you know, this robbery, solving this robbery did him very well. He became a member of parliament, became a judge. He had all sorts of accolades, and it all started because of this. And so he used it greatly to his advantage. Thurida did not do so well at it caused a lot of controversy for her because everybody local knew that she'd helped. And that's the reason the records have existed. But he certainly was happy to erase it. And so his autobiography, he doesn't, he says he did it all together. And he says that people dropped at his feet and kissed his hands and felt he had supernatural abilities to be able to do this. He actually writes this. So I'm sorry, there's no wiggle room. But luckily, because everybody else wrote so much, this is the wonderful rare case, we also know that she did it because all the local people, in reality, because all the local people actually wrote that down. It's just lucky because usually the person who did it in this case would have never gotten any credit at all. And how she ended up solving it, I thought was really interesting. And it had to do with the stitching on a shoe that was left behind by the robbers. And it was like they left behind, what was it, a mitten, a shoe, and a hat, which honestly seems like they're not they're not being very professional about this if they're leaving three different items no they're not professional they also left a steel rod yeah no they were terrible they left all kinds of clues 
<laughs> and the story of what happens to the three robbers is sorry, four robbers, um, the, the two the two brothers is also quite sad. I encourage people to to read the book to learn more about that. What can can you tell us a little bit about what was the outcome of solving this case for Thoreau? It was very controversial because the punishments were so harsh that the local people needed somebody to blame, but also because this county commissioner, he then decided to root out what he called evil. The fishing people were more independent than other people. They they took a very tight control of everybody, forcing people to... Um, people were basically serfs, and so fishing people had a bit more independence, something the authorities did not like. And this community was one that they really felt should be rooted out. So he just, on relentless things of small infractions people had done or, you know, pilfering from the merchant house and hideous punishments put out to people, that was just him. I think he got so much traction from the solving the, supposedly solving the the initial robbery that he saw. I mean, this was a great opportunity for him. So he just went and went and went and went. And the local people couldn't really blame him. So there was a lot of blame on Thurder. There were some people who were, she had very strong allies, but other people got to, so they really hated her because they blamed her for this. So for her, it, it, it became very difficult in a lot of ways. But what's amazing is how she dealt with it. And I think she's so strong. Could I be so strong? I don't know. It wasn't just the, oh, great, you know, she helps and solves the nerve mystery and all's happily ever after, not in the slightest. One of the things I really admired about her um, in reading her book was how kind of litigious she was. So, you know, as a lot of people start accusing her of having done X, Y, and Z, you know, or I think there was there was one drunk guy who accused her of being hermaphrodite, she takes him to court, you know, and sues for defamation. And I just thought that was incredible that she's she suddenly become involved in this case and is seen has been unwillingly dragged into the court system and then figures out how to use it for her own ends and to defend both herself and her own reputation but um as you mentioned earlier she there's a woman whose um husband is is beating her and she actually helps sue on behalf of this woman and to help get her legal separation and divorce you can see what's really fun, which I tried to show in the book, but because there's so much material on her, you can see her mature and development develop and grow in confidence too. Because, I mean, women could go to court on their own behalf in Iceland at this time, unlike most of Europe. So that is one thing. And so she did. And she found, I mean, she was very, she was obviously very good at it. So she realized that that's one place where she could actually fight for her rights, not the only place. She she did. You know, people harassed her for wearing trousers, when, you know, for all sorts of people abused her for whatever reason, she took them to court. So she went to court a lot, which is great because there's all the records of that, you know. <laughs> yeah. That was very helpful. And then, she, yeah, and first she does it on her own behalf, but then she starts doing it on the behalf of others. Mm-hmm. So you can see she gets, and she goes for bigger and bigger cases too. She takes on bigger opponents. So she actually, in the end, goes against the actual state. She fights against the state for medical attention for her adopted daughter, who's her niece. 
so who has a medical disability. So she, she goes against the state there, which is almost unheard of, let alone for a woman. It's just, and you watch, and that was quite a sophisticated case she had to do. So you just can see through her life as she just gets stronger and stronger and stronger at it. The one about the guy calling her too tooled, essentially, having both genitalia. That was when she was 80, about 80. And so was he, actually. They were, oh, you can imagine, they were both helping with the sheep roundup. I can just see it. These two old people with their canes going, and what are you doing? <laughs> Screaming. <laughs> so, and the, the, pre, the pastor, who had always been her great friend and ally, he's there too. And he's going, okay, okay, guys, look. And he's like 85 at that time. It's like, okay, guys, you know, let's let's try and just you're the, the guy who's doing this is drunk. Let's just, you know. And in true, when he sobered up, he just gave her a meek apology, which is fair mm-hmm. enough. She said, All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned the case, the her last uh, big court case, which I believe took almost ten years or maybe slightly more, where she's suing the state and actually wins. Um, to get a really significant pension for her adopted mm. daughter slash niece. Mm. Yeah, pretty impressive, huh? Yeah. And she doesn't give up. You know, anybody else would have given up. But it totally impoverishes her. Yeah. Because she had to pay, I mean, she couldn't write. And also she had to have, like, official documents. Essentially, she's paying this equivalent of lawyers. But she has to pay people to write all these documents to do the, to appeal this for the, to the court. And so this 10 years, it, that's why she's, she's very impoverished in her, the end of her life because of this case. There's no doubt about it. She was going to make sure she wasn't going to give up. And she did win. And, and long after she'd already passed away, the state was still paying her adopted daughter total medical care. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen that she not only kind of challenges the state to stand up for what's right, but she's also kind of challenging the gender norms of the time. And I kind of am interested to hear how you think she challenged those norms and whether they were quite so far out as we might think, or if there were a lot of other women that were, you know, living with partners unmarried, um, wearing men's clothes, uh, doing what was considered male, male jobs, or whether she was quite unique at that time for her actions. I think both. She was unique. Women... Other women wore, women did go to sea. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what my first book brought to light. Lots of women worked alongside the boats with the men, which today in Iceland, their fishing history is completely imaged as male in all their official stuff. Most Icelanders believe this, despite the fact that until 1900, it very much was not, which is unfortunate. It's a whole woman's participation that's erased. So it was no big thing for her to go to sea at all. Girls did. Young girls did. And young boys. And women did wear trousers to sea. I mean, long wool skirts working on open fishing boats was bad, you know, and very dangerous. Um, But no one else that any record seems to talk about, I've never heard of anybody at all in Iceland at that time, no other woman wore trousers on land. Because there was so much poverty and so few people, because so many people died, I think the gender roles were a bit more permeable at that time. It was only sort of toward the later part of the 1800s that you get this idea of the housewife and the concept that a woman should be in the house. Um, And this idea of the woman wearing the national dress and this idea of what's the model housewife, uh, the model woman. That was not 
around in the late 1700s. They didn't, everybody was just struggling to survive. She was accepted as that. You know, people respected her massively. And later on, and she was clearly very, very funny, and people really liked her. And later on, she she works in a merchant store in a larger community. And she's put in front because to, to attract customers because she's so good at talking to all the guys, it's all men, in her trousers there. And she wears her hair short, which was a male style. She also did that. She didn't wear it up, have it long like a woman usually did. That was accepted. She be a lot of officials in that town or merchants certainly. Even the Danes really liked her, and she became a you know a guide. This is in her sixties, doing all these quite dangerous treks for people. Had she been born, say, by the time she died, I don't know if this would have been allowed. I think the gender. Boundaries became much stronger. Um, I mean, before, by the 1900s, women weren't even allowed to go to, on fishing boats because then it became more commercialized, industrialized as, as they got motors. Mm-hmm. And then women were shoved off the boats and then erased. So she was in a specific time where this gender permeability, if somebody wanted to do it in the way she did, could exist. And true, lots of people, because marriage... Laws were so onerous, lots of Icelanders, much to the disgust of Europeans and the elite, did end up living together because they really didn't have any choice. And whereas she did it because she she wasn't going to give that power to a guy to marry her because mm-hmm. then he was your master. So she was, no, I'm not going to do that. So, you know, she said that. That's what, quite interesting, too. She was very strong-minded on that. And it's, it's really interesting how you talk about her second marriage, where she's basically blackmailed into marrying this this younger man who really admired her and worked, you know, as on her shipping boat, but then basically blackmails her by threatening to not help her bring in the hay, like during the, you know, the summer harvest. And so she kind of goes along with it up to a point and then backs him legally up into a corner where he's, he's forced out. And it's... Mm-hmm. It shows that quite a lot of forethought and thinking and understanding people as well, I think. Yeah. And what's so cool, that was actually her third relationship because she lived with two guys yeah. for a short time. And then, or for one, quite a bit longer. But um, yeah, that was when she was in her 40s and he was 20. Yes, it does. It shows a lot of cleverness and just calmness. And what I think is also really cool is that they ended up as friends. Yeah. That's also really clear in the record. She she was able to manage these things and also maintain a cordial relationship. Now, that that comes through really clearly. That takes a lot of skill for anybody, I have to say. It's very impressive, especially when they're trying to blackmail you into marriage. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that was that was quite impressive. I also love learning about her like very very long standing friendship with is was he the archdeacon or the priest i can't remember the title well he starts out as a pastor a priest is difficult because priest because they were married it was it was more it was a lutheran church okay. but Jakob, yeah she meets him when she's in her 20s and early 20s they become very very close friends mm-hmm. until his death at 85 she was she had a deep faith for sure. Mm-hmm. She had a deep faith in God. And they had lots and lots of religious discussions. This is very clear. She was a deep thinker. This is also really clear. 
he admires her. I mean, he is the reason that she became a captain because he got a boat and he asked her if she would captain it. So she later worked for other people, but that was him. And mm-hmm. he stood up beside her all the way through. I, he was. He seems a very impressive person to me too, actually. A very thinking, open-minded person. Yeah. His wife was literate and wrote and was supposed to be a very good poet as well. There's not much written on her, unfortunately. It's not very often in the stories with a woman that we've done so far that we come across someone in the clergy that um, is so kind of open-minded, enlightened, but it's really nice when we do. I thought so too. And his penmanship is beautiful. Because he wrote, you know, all these letters of support. So you can, and the way he wrote them, I mean, that's what's so wonderful is we were able to actually see them in his hand, mm-hmm. you know, this beautiful, beautiful script. And I just felt, I just felt like, God, his hand touched this paper and wrote it. You know, it just made me, touched me in a certain way. It was always one of my favorite things about doing research in the Duke Humphreys Library at Oxford was seeing manuscripts that have been written in the hands of the people that have been dead for 400 years that I was spending, you know, months and months and months studying. And there's something really special about that. Very cool. I've kind of already asked you this, but if there's anything else um, about the challenges that you face in researching and writing in third, or you'd like to talk about, I'm all ears. We can. I, I think what I would like to say, I mean, I've already said this pretty well, but it's it's the opposite of a challenge. I I feel so privileged and grateful that the people of Iceland have so supported me. And I mean, I, this, this, you know, I wrote the book and I take full responsibility for it, of course. It was a whole large group of people that put it together, you know, and who were incredibly generous, sharing their knowledge and material and support. And I mean, it was amazing to me. So you were talking about writing, having to write this while COVID was going on and, and that kind of experience. Did you see a lot of parallels between the measles epidemic in Iceland that happened in 1846 that Thorodor lived through and the COVID pandemic? Certainly the beginning of the COVID, you know, it's like when people are dying right left and center, it was really tragic and people getting it and then having to go back to work because they couldn't afford to stay home. That's what happened in the measles epidemic. 1845, people got the measles and then they had to go back to work because they couldn't afford to stay and they starved to death. So, and people didn't understand really how it was spreading and they had no way to combat it. One of the things I found really interesting um, just at the start of her story is the fact that one of the reasons she's kind of forced to keep going out to sea and things is because her father dies at 14 um, of leprosy. And this is this is not a disease I associate with Iceland at all and didn't didn't realize that was a problem. So I, I thought that was really It was quite a problem, yeah. At that, on the coast, particularly that area mm. of the coast, it was. A lot of people got leprosy at that stage. And people just, there was not, nothing they could do about it at that time. Yeah, he died young. And I think you do an incredible job in your book as well, like talking about the the social state or complete lack thereof sometimes and how you know people who can't work are supported or and let down by society at that point and just how close to starvation a lot of times people were living. So Icelanders have done a lot of research on this and so you were able to get this information some really good Icelandic historians and it's terrible. 
I'm glad people are reading, you know, I'm, I'm finding people who are visiting Iceland are reading my book. In fact, they're changing their holidays to go where 30 they lived instead of where they were going to go beforehand, which I really love. I think, and I'm sure that really improves their trip because this gives them a depth of connection of the country they're visiting. One reason I'm glad is because visitors to Iceland generally just see what is in appearance this Nordic country that is reasonably prosperous and mm-hmm. it's very pretty and it's starkly stunning. You know, Iceland has touts its great gender equality now. And so seeing it as this, just like like a Norway or a Finland, isn't mm-hmm. it wonderful, you know? But it's very, very different. The people are very, very different. Its history is very, very different in that it was this horrific oppression for 600 years. It's not that long. I got like independence in 1944. Yeah. And so in Iceland, really... That's a part of everybody's sense of self. But I think it's really important when we look at anything, a society, anybody, to have, look under the surface, you know, Ibsen play or something. You know, you're looking under the, seeing what what we perceive as reality, how our deeper knowledge shifts. I think that understanding through her life, one person's lived life in the context of, what happened day in and day out, the horror of it, makes the people's understanding much deeper. So I'm really glad about that. I hope it does do that. I think it does. What's brought you personally the most joy in being able to share Thorider's story? Um, Just on a straight personal level, one of the parts that's been so much fun is giving talks and hearing people's responses. The publisher was sent me up to Alaska, which is fantastic. And so I went to all these small fishing communities where in Alaska, a lot of women are fishing. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot of women who work fishing. You know, they've done it intergenerationally. You know, their mothers have done it. They've And so they came like in Cordova and Homer and Kodiak, all these places. They came to the talks. They were packed when before the fishing season, there was much else to do, you see. So you get a very good audience in the situation. And... It was so much fun to hear their perception and their thoughts and their talk, you know, what they had to say, and then have them. They said, okay, well, we're going to go out. So we would go out on their boats. And I just love the kind of knowledge that I get from other people because they all bring their whole life experience to reading the book. And then that filters through and comes out with something totally different. My last question is just, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you about? You've covered it pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I guess in that case, I'm going to change the question um, for the listeners. Is there any part of Thorador's life that we haven't talked about that you think really highlights who she was and how exceptional she was? You know, I think... Through all, you know, the book is full of adventures. She was an amazing, obviously amazing leader. Surfing in her boat when she's 63, you know, or, you know, they're on big surf and she managed to get the whole boat to come in on a single wave with her crew. Very good crew, of course. Just incredible captain and all that. Touched on this, but so wonderful because of the depth and breadth of the material, which one never, ever gets. Her intelligence comes through her exceptional qualities come through all the time 
That's what's so exciting to see. And because of that, one can watch her grow through mm-hmm. all the texts. You can see, you can perceive her maturing and growing and understanding. And what I find amazing about her is she went through, as you read the book, you can tell she went through a hell of a lot. I mean, a lot of people were really jerks to her. And she ends up a depth of compassion and still with an incredible perception beyond what I think most of us can even imagine, also mixing it with this wisdom and compassion that comes through in every interaction, even, you know, into her 80s and everything. You know, people wrote about it. It was still exceptional at that age. I don't know. She seems an amazing person. I just wish I could have met her, you know. Yeah. I just, but I'm so glad these records occurred. It makes me, it makes me sort of cry for all the records that are not, you know, all the people, um, especially women and, and marginalized peoples that we never hear about. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, the, that's 99.9% of them all, that this is an exception. Like we're really lucky. And I'm glad I was able to do it. And also, I feel really glad that I did it when I did it. Because as I say, some of the people are passing away now who had knowledge. So I just feel very privileged. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you um, about your book, which again is called Woman Rebel Captain, and to learn more about Captain Thorodar. I hope to read more books that you've written. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Demons and Dames. We will respectfully encourage you to rate us, to review us, and to recommend us to your friends. And enemies. It might make you like them a bit better. (laughs) You can follow us on Instagram at DemonsDamesPod, on Twitter at DamesDemons. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook or demonsanddames at gmail.com. Bye. We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. Oh, <laughs> bitch. <laughs>